Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources, minimizing waste and maximizing human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 50 and to Waste Not What Not's very first birthday. I've had the privilege of connecting with some amazing humans since I launched the podcast a year ago and there have been so many nuggets of wisdom about conscious living, from living a fulfilling authentic life, conservation, creating a sustainable environment for ourselves and fellow inhabitants of the planet, from birds to bees, horses to orangutans, as well as crustaceans and cetaceans, and as I round off season one, honouring the end of the cycle of life. I've been asked if I have a favourite episode, and I can honestly say I don't. I love the diversity, depth and breadth of all the subjects I covered, the opportunity to learn and see things through a different lens, but most of all, it was the people and the chance to convey messages of real hope and positive change that's actually happening, thanks to these ordinary, everyday, extraordinary humans who are genuinely enthusiastic, tenacious and humble about the work they're doing. By far the most popular quote my guest chose was, be the change you want to see in the world. And when asked about the one thing they'd change in the world, their answer always mirrored the nature of the work they're actually doing, which clearly demonstrated how important it is to step up and role model the change you want to happen. December is the time of year when we reflect on the past 12 months and evaluate how our experiences have helped or hindered our ability to do what matters most to us. I've been doing just that and have decided to take a sabbatical from the podcast until the beginning of February so I can channel all my energy into finishing the book I've been writing since the beginning of time. I have an important message to share about creating the change you want to make and living life in harmony with your true nature so you don't get to the end of your life with regrets wishing you'd followed your heart as opposed to doing what was expected of you. Life is definitely for living to the full and when it's time to leave this world I for one want peace of mind to embrace the transition with dignity and support not only for myself but for those I leave behind. I want someone like my sensational guest today, Helen Callanan, a professional death doula, to hold space for me. Someone who can prepare the way for me to come to terms with the inevitable end of my life and embrace it with grace. Welcome to the show, Helen. It's really lovely to have you with me all the way from Australia. Thank you so much, Philippa. I really welcome any opportunity to chat about all things life and death in the universe. So thank you all the way from New Zealand for inviting me. And my background is in psychology and mentoring and all about the quality of life and living life to the full. Now, you're the complete other end of the spectrum (laughs) and all about the quality of a death experience. And I thought it would be really cool to open this up because it tends to be an 
incredibly taboo subject. And I know myself, my father passed three and a half years ago and he's in England. Mm -hmm. So he had about six months or so, but it was all very sudden. And I know a lot of attention is paid right at the end. And for me, part of my reason for contacting you is we're so caught up at the end doing all the stuff, preparing for them to die and what to do afterwards that the person experiencing something that is quite sacred because a life is going to die. It's part of the cycle. And it would be really good to know how to allow those people to die with dignity. I think that's a word that came to me from my father. Yes. Yeah, so mm. There's probably a million questions in there. So take whichever there one. There certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> I think where I'd like to start is the whole thing around life and death. You know, you really hit on it that it's life versus death, particularly in the West and aging versus death like death and aging are two things we want to try and push away and keep yeah. at bay and that's yeah. where the taboo comes in and I think therefore there's a lot of fear around it for people yeah. death's a 10 out of 10 stat you know <laughs> that we're all going there and what if what would be possible Philippa if we were actually able to embrace death as simply one of the chapters of a life and whether it is six months incoming, like your dad, where from diagnosis to death is six months, for some people it's some years, for some people it's sudden and instant. What if we could live our lives? Because it's actually all about the living right up to that last breath. You know, one of the things as end of life doulas, which is where I work and, and what I teach, one of the things we focus on is on quality of life a person has right up to that last breath. And then beyond that as well, like caring for their body after death. These days, there's a lot more focus on home base mm. after death care and family led after death care and family led funerals and more natural and organic, holistic focus away from some of the more traditional, conventional care models, but also funeral rite models as well. There's a lot more family involvement now. There's so much change is happening, which I love because it's bringing people back to the heart of the matter and back to caring for each other. And especially at times of transition, death's a transition, birth's a transition, Marriage is a transition. A career, a job is a transition. Life is full of transitions. Yeah. Right? From one to another to another. And sometimes we bring wisdoms and grace with us. And sometimes we're struggling to get to the next step. It can be the same with death as well. For some people walk into it with their arms and eyes and hearts open. Other people go into it fearful and resistant. Yeah. And that will often make a difference to the quality of a person's death and end of life and for their families and, and people close to them as well. You mentioned earlier the word doula. Now, I know what it means, but I do know some people <laughs> I've had conversations with. Could you expand on the meaning of the word sure. doula? Yeah, 100%. So it's actually a Greek word, D-O-U-L-A. Yeah. And a doula traditionally, originally, when the old days meant slave. But these days we've sort of elevated a bit now to, um, <laughs> to personal service. And so basically a doula is a non-medical, non-clinical role 
So we're not nurses and doctors, although some nurses become doulas, but we're a non-medical, non-clinical role that provides support, education, resources, companionship to people and those close to them at end of life. So we help with planning. We can help with companioning. We can help with being there in vigil. And as I say, we bridge a lot of the gaps in the conventional care model. Right. You know, there's so much publicity these days about our nursing teams and our allied health teams are struggling in the conventional care setting because of like, for example, the impacts of COVID and other things and the staff ratios are down. And here in Australia, for example, we've had a lot of quite negative publicity and stories coming out of our conventional aged care model. Their suicide is, rates are increasing Dementia is increasing. We're now entering the time of the baby boomers. I'm one. I'm guessing you're probably one too. So us baby boomers, we're aging and we're going to be dying. So the stats are extraordinary when you really look at aging and dying. That's coming. The current medical and conventional care systems already have insufficient beds, already have insufficient community support. So the doula Non-medical, non-clinical, as I said, can be someone who's there supporting a family or an individual as their person is aging and or dying and afterwards. I think one of the unique things that I really love about the end-of-life doula role, and and because, of course, there are birth doulas. Many people of your your listeners might have heard of birth doulas. Well, we're doulas at the other end. The thing that I love and I I say is a very unique thing that end-of-life doulas offer is this authentic continuity of care. Because we work inside a model of life which has 10 stages. And this was created by Natural Grace, a holistic funeral care. And we work very closely with them here in Australia and also when we deliver training in New Zealand as well. It's all about that we're living our lives well. Yeah. And then a diagnosis or aging might enter the picture. And then we might be having treatment. And then we're living with our illness. We might enter the palliative care stage. And then eventually we'll be actively dying. Then we die. Then there's after death care. Then there's funeral rites. Then there's on with the care of the living and on into grief and bereavement and loss. So all across this spectrum, you have different teams of people that come in and drop in and out. So for example, it's a diagnostic team. What are those symptoms? What's wrong with you? Okay, now you have a treating team. And then maybe the treatment's no longer. Then you have the palliative care team. Then you have a funeral care team after deaths occurred, et cetera, right? But the doula is the one role, Philippa, that can actually accompany a family or an individual or both all the way through all of those stages. Wow. And I've done that with a number of people, right, from diagnosis. And sometimes I work with a family for three and a half years. Wow. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I'm involved with them all the time because sometimes they're just getting on and doing their thing. But when some transition comes or the next stage comes, I'll come and re-engage again. And I've worked with clients in New Zealand, clients in Australia, in America. So my business preparing the way we actually train end-of-life doulas in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, you're the first accredited in the world, aren't you? 
That's right. Yeah, we literally are back in September. We launched the world's first certificate four in end of life doula services. So we're so proud of that. It's Mm. been on the vision board for six years, on the working board for two years and two and a half years. And finally, we put it in the water in September. And it's going to be a major game changer, Philippa. And I'm very proud of it. And I'm very excited because It's taken everything to get that thing in the water. It's such a gift because it's going to elevate the role of doula everywhere now that we finally have a qualification because today's world, particularly in conventional care areas, unless you have a qualification, it's tough to get in the door. And we need doulas everywhere, Philippa. We need doulas wherever people are dying. We need doulas working with the police and with the ambulances. We need doulas working where there's suicide and where there's trauma. We need doulas in aged care. We need doulas in hospitals, in hospices. We need doulas everywhere, children and adults and everywhere in between. Because again, it's non-clinical, non-medical. So it's taking some of the medicalization out of end life and bringing back the heart, bringing back the care and really being with people and allowing people their experience and giving people back their choice and capacity and control (laughs) that time rather than taking it from them. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed on your website that capacity, control and choice were three really important aspects of the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely, Philippa. And I think, look, there are so many things in life. And and this is a fact that as we age or as we become more unwell, maybe we have a life limiting or terminal diagnosis, either as we're age or as we're becoming more unwell, our choice, capacity and control are either diminishing or they're being taken from us by someone else. Mm. So, you know, to me, as long as there is breath, there is hope. And as long as there is breath, there is an opportunity to give people back choice, capacity and control. There may come a time when a person can no longer speak for themselves, right? Maybe their illness has got to such a point or they're aging. But you know what? If we've worked with them ahead of time, we can have their voice documented. Mm. So that's advanced care planning and things like that. So that even when you may be unable to speak with your voice anymore, what you've already put in place, your planning, empowering people in your life, telling them, having those conversations is all about empowering people to have their choice and to have their preferences met. I think of you and, and your listeners what's important to them what are their values yeah you know are they interested in doing things more naturally and eco-friendly are they wanting to be resuscitated and kept alive at all costs are they not now people are much more interested in making choices now rather than just going along with the flow people are much more empowered now so to me it's like well you know you best so my job as a little would be to say okay philippa what's important to you What are your choices? What are your values? So let's make sure that your planning illustrates that. My job is then to help you fulfill that. It's not about me telling you what you should do because I'm not the expert in your life. You are. What I'm hearing for myself, because there is no emotional attachment like a family or a close friend, it's a lot easier to manage it. Whereas as a close friend or family member, you're actually thinking about how you will feel when this person goes. And so 
you tend to project your own stuff on that person and Mm -hmm. you have your own expectations. I know a friend who was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and the pressure on her to do certain treatments when she wanted to try a different way from children, it was quite hard to stomach and having that impartial support is invaluable. Yes, you're absolutely right, Philippa. And sometimes too, as an end-of-life doula, we can facilitate those conversations of understanding and choice and really helping people and explore options. There's four things we say a doula does not do. One of them is we don't diagnose. We're not specialists in that area. We don't recommend starting or stopping medications or treatments. Yeah. Um, because again, that's not our purview. We don't administer medications. And the most important one is we don't give advice. We provide options. So if someone were to come to us, let's say you came to me and said, oh, Helen, look, I'm thinking of stopping chemotherapy. Mm. What do you think? I would be like, well, let's have a look at your options, Philippa. If you do stop, there'll be pros and cons with that. Let's look at those. If we don't know what they are, let's go find them out. If you do stop, there'll be pros and cons with that. So let's go look at those. Now, out of all of those options, what there feels the true thing to you right now? Yeah. With the understanding, you can always change your mind if you need to. Yes. I mean, that's really important, isn't it? It yeah. is. Yeah. It's like no one's set in stone. And I've actually been present when a doctor said to their patient, well, if you're not going to undertake these treatments, I can no longer work with you. Wow. Now, I heard that with my own ears. And so, okay, that's their specialty. I get that. But it took choice away from that person. Yeah. Right? Mm. And as human beings, one of the gifts we have is choice. And whether we exercise it or not, and whether we claim it, using your friend as an example with the diagnosis and the family, is the family make having their view out of their care and fear and concern rather than, okay, mum, what do you want? And wow, I'm feeling fear and concern about that. But you know what? I'm here to back you. Yeah. And that's, as you say, whereas an end of life doula, it's like, here's my creed. Is it legal? Is it safe? Mm. Is it possible? And if it ticks those three boxes, I'm in. It's lovely that it's so simple. Have you found that the people who've come to you, that the support you give lessens their fear? They have more faith in the process or anything? So the answer to that is yes and no (laughs) for some. So we use a term as well as where we are death comfortable. Yes. So we're comfortable in this space. And you would experience yourself. When you're around someone and you're maybe a bit anxious about something, maybe something new and you're a bit like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. And and you've got someone who comes into that environment and they're like, hi, how are you doing? And no worries, you've got this and I've got you and we'll get through this together. It's like you go, oh, okay, I'm safe here. Yeah. So that can happen a lot where people are less frightened. But then there are some people who can be less frightened, but then as they're actually approaching the very end, there's other fears come up. So for some people, it's when there's things unresolved, yeah, right? And it might be relationship stuff or things from their past. And sometimes it's fear that comes from previous either religious or spiritual learnings. That can come up and go, oh, my God, you know, I'm facing sort of judgment day stuff. Yeah, yeah. For some people, depending on what they've been brought up with. 
I remember one woman I worked with uh, many years ago now, she had dementia and she had been raised a Catholic and was a very devout practicing Catholic and used to go to mass very regularly and prayed and really loved her religion. She really loved it and got a lot out of it. Then due to some difficult circumstances in her marriage, she opted for divorce. Now, of course, back then, that meant that that was a sin, but it was really untenable for her to be able to stay in the marriage. There was a lot of circumstances that uh, made it dangerous. So she stopped going to church. Wow. And so as her dementia increased, she used to talk to me about how fearful she was. And and I used to say, you love God, you love Jesus, you love Mary, and yes. And do you really think that if you were to meet them today, that they would actually turn you away? Them. Not the priest, not the church, them. Mm. And she goes, oh, I don't want to think so. And I said, well, do you really think they would? And she said, actually, no, I don't think they would. I said, so maybe it's how the church the body that it is, the business that it is, maybe they've made some rules that maybe Mary and Jesus might not have made. And she was like able to, and I said, let's go and talk to a priest and find out. So we did it because her local church, we took her back there and she went and she ended up spending time with the priest and her level of comfort and she began to pray. Oh my God. I know, right? She began to pray again and I know it brought her peace. Mm. that just to get that resolved in her head. And all I could do is take it back to the most simple thing, what we've ever learned. And I think to me, it's about no matter what tradition you're in, yep. religion, tradition, spiritual faith, what doesn't matter. Even if it's atheist and you believe in stardust and we all come from that and go back to that, doesn't matter what it is you believe in. I see that people who have belief in something greater than themselves. Yep will often find a lot more peace in that as they're approaching end of life. A particular teacher that I worked with for many years and have studied with always taught that death is one more breath. Your breath out in the body, then your next breath in is out of the body. It's like a gateway rather than the cliff. You know, that's it. It's all over then. So again, another possible way of looking at it. I love exploring with people It's not about me telling people what I believe. I have beliefs. You know, I'm a human being. I've got beliefs. But I rarely talk about my beliefs because who cares? I can't prove them. But I want to know what you believe. And I want to explore that with you if you're the person I'm working with and really go there. Because to me, when we can get in touch with our love and what inspires us and our heart, that's where I find peace and comfort are. So how can we open the conversation up and make it more every day? Start talking. Yeah, yeah. Silly <laughs> question, really. It's obvious, isn't it? No, you know, I sounded glib and it, I mean it. I have these conversations all the time and I'm sitting with people having conversations all the time that are having their first conversations with their precious people. I often ask people the question, what are you afraid of happening if you were to have this conversation? Well, they'll poo-poo me, okay, or they'll judge me, or they won't want to talk about it, or whatever, whatever. And all understandable fears, this to me is where courage comes in, again from the heart, right? Courage, Yeah. right? It's from the heart. 
what I see happen often is when we say to someone we care about, there's something that is really important to me that I would really appreciate talking to you about and having you listen. Are you willing to do that? Get their permission. Would it be all right if I talked this through with you? Mm. Be giving them choice. Actually, no, it's not okay. I don't want it. Okay, good. I'm just thinking for myself, my daughter's very sensitive, but it's also, I guess, when you get to that time, when the relation friend or whoever has had that conversation with you, it must give you great peace of mind that you are honouring your parent, friend or whatever, and you have a deep understanding of it. And I think just speaking for myself, I'm quite happy to do it, but I think it's taking on the tears from the person that you're with because they're thinking of you dying. And it's like, well, I mean, I can be quite glib. It's Well, it's going to happen one day, darling, so it's better that we have this conversation now. I flippantly say, just fold me in half and stick me in a box and, you know, have lovely thoughts. But the reality is there's always shit to pick up and, and manage. And also that everybody deals with grief differently. I think that's an important that's right. Some people really withdraw, don't want to be mm. part of funerals or anything or managing right. anything, yep. while other people were quite happy to get in there. And it's actually right. honouring that space to them, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And look, there are some people who say, I don't care what you do with me after I'm dead. I'll be dead. I I won't know about it. Yeah. And that's fair enough, right? But I think one of the things that I talk with families about is, yes, but after the death, then it's time for the living. Yeah, exactly. We need to take care of that person Mm -hmm. and they fulfill their final wishes. Generally speaking, when death occurs in 99.9% of the situations, there is grief and pain. And so, what I see over and over and over again, Philippa, is the difference it makes when those conversations have been had. Yeah. Why? Because, as you said, the family can honestly, when it's all over and everyone's gone home, they can honestly put their hand on their heart and go, you know what? We did a really good job. Mm. We gave mom or dad or my friend or my sister the very best that we could and we did what they wanted. Or, and sometimes you don't know, and especially when you've got a sudden death, if there's been no conversation, you don't know, you've got to make stuff up. And one woman I worked with, her husband got sick one day and died the next, out of the blue. And 44, three young boys. And for many years afterwards, the wife agonised about her choice to bury Because she said, I actually don't know if he would have wanted that or not because it was one conversation they'd never had. It haunted her. Wow. Mm. Did I make the right choice? Did I do what he would have wanted? Because that's what she wanted to do. Yeah. She would have done whatever he wanted. Yeah, yeah. Such was her love. As I say a lot in my training, that when we die, our death lands on someone's lap. Yeah, yeah. And they have to pick it up and deal with it in their grief. And so for us to have had conversations and left instructions and expressed our wishes, even if, look, these are my wishes. However, if you really feel strongly about doing something else, just go for it. You've got my full permission. But if you want to know, I wouldn't mind this, 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 and this. And it can be as casual as that. It can be written down. There's so many documents now you can use. 
there's care plans and advanced care plans and advanced care directives. That's where you're leaving instructions in the medical realm, what's okay and what's not okay for you around quality of life. Like if you had a heart attack or someone had a heart attack and or, or a stroke or whatever, what's quality of life is okay with you? Yeah. Do you want things stuck down your nose to keep you fed and alive for yonks while you're unconscious? Is that yeah. what you want? And it's fine if you do. Mm. But really, is that what you want? Is that what your family wants? Is having the courage to have those conversations, but to treat people kindly in them because they are emotional conversations mm. for some people. I, I can honestly say from my experience that to be able to have them when there's no need for them yeah. is the gentlest way to have them because we can think about it and talk about it and we can explore it and, and we might have tears and, and fears normal human organic right yeah but giving them room you know to go wow you are gonna die and gee i'm gonna die one day and we're all gonna die you know what i've never thought of that before yeah. we mm. live like we're 10 foot tall and bulletproof we're absolutely not lots to think about <laughs> lots to think about yeah and i i just think the story you were saying about the lady who carried it in her heart is the right thing having those earlier conversations makes you as an individual think about the various options because probably at the time in the midst of her grief and the trauma of everything she probably could only bring to mind one way of doing it whereas yes. if we thought about it before there's a number of different options and as you say you know we can change our minds at any particular stage yeah mm. another woman that I worked with actually she was in my training shared the story about her husband who died at home quite young. She looked after him through his illness and he finally died at home in her arms. And even though she was expecting it and she knew it was coming, it was still in shock. And then the next thing she knew, there was a funeral director there taking his body away. And she had not organised that. But her family, thinking they were doing the right thing, went, right, let's get this done quick. Let's get him out of here now. She said, I just didn't even have the wherewithal at the time to say, no, go away. No, he's staying here with me for a couple of days. Mm. She said, but that's what I wanted. Yep. And I wanted to bathe him and I wanted to spend time with him when I wasn't his full-time carer. I wanted just to love him and be with him and then give him over to, to the next steps in his journey. Mm. And and I'm just her heartbreak. And honestly, her family thought they were doing the right Absolutely. and kind thing, mm. right? They didn't do a bad thing. However, there was no consultation. There was no communication. And often when we're in grief, people make decisions behind other people's back with good intent. But in the long term, it can have very significant impacts. And we Communication think we, everything. It is. A living or dying, absolutely. I yeah, remember going over to my father and it was within 10 days of my arriving back in England that he passed. I went with trepidation knowing that this would be the last time I saw him and I thought I'd be really sad. I was somewhere else in England at the time and got the phone call. He'd gone to hospice. So I went there and it was so beautiful. And then I berated myself afterwards that because I was anticipating it to be sad and I should be bawling my eyes out, it was such a beautiful experience to be there when he passed with my sister Yes. And seeing that last breath. I mean, I can remember, it, you know, near the end, you've got the rasping 
and my sister and I were laughing and I we were talking about something and I said do you think you could just be quiet dad we're trying to have a conversation here and I could just feel his laughter and it was just so beautiful and yes. I guess because I have a faith in that bigger picture whatever it happens to be that I knew he was at peace and and he just transitioned he'd taken his last yes. breath and he'd gone yeah, it was so unexpected. Whereas yes. other people that, who appear to have everything together could crumble completely. And, and I think this is it. I see a lot of adults, 40, 50, 60 years old, who've never been in the presence of a deceased person. So as they get older, it gets scarier. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you think back 90 to 100 years ago, our great grandparents and grandparents, they took care of their dying and their dead at home. Yeah. In fact, some yeah. cultures still do. Mm. That's why it was called the front parlour, right? Oh, okay. That's where you, put them, you lay them out in the front parlour and the ladies came and bathed them and dressed them and people bought food and everyone gathered and paid their respects and then the men built the coffin and off they walked. Everyone walked down to the village and they buried them. That was the way of it. But we grew up around death and dying. Mm. And so when we outsourced death back 90 to 100 years ago, we sent it to hospitals and aged care facilities and funeral directors. Intrinsically, nothing wrong with that. However, there was a cost. And the cost was we lost our competence and our confidence in taking care of our dying and our dead. And the connection. It's not Robinson. The connection, the community, it's the support, the everything that's there. And I think it's an accepted a part of the natural process, whereas now we're treated more like commodities and it's an organisation yeah. and it's, it's so mechanical. It's taking yeah, exactly. humanness out of it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's an old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to lay someone to rest. And I think, and this is what I see, there's a new, uh, what's well, not new now, it's maybe even before the 2000s, but there's a new model called Compassionate Communities. Yeah. And it's a model that's talking about bringing um, our communities, taking care of our ageing and our dead and our dying and our grieving people in our communities. And I, the thing I love in New Zealand, I love training in New Zealand, is the beautiful example that the Maori cultures set, yep. where they go home to the marae and there's this beautiful ceremony. And so they're practicing this. That's all part of their culture. And it's holistic. Whereas when we're doing it here in the West, it's much more process yep. and protocol rather than what's going to serve the heart of people but there's a big movement shifting right now yeah. which I'm so happy about and the end of life doulas is a part of that home-based after death care natural funeral care all of those things are now becoming much more common in the language and people are starting to ask more questions and have more conversations about that which is really exciting yeah. and I think what you're saying about the stages it's like well once they're underground or being cremated the care that you have for the living afterwards and managing it, that is so crucial as well. Oh, 100%. Because if you think about that scale of, of 1 to 10, if I could show it to you, yeah. death occurs around the middle. Right. Death's not the end. As a doula, then we have after-death care, then funeral care, then care for the living. So it's around the middle. And there's a lot more that can be done after death, as you say, to care for the living, yeah. So how on earth did you get into this? 
$64,000 question. Many years ago, I did a degree in Chinese medicine and acupuncture back in the 80s. And I completed that degree. But while I was doing it, I became a bit of a seminar junkie. I was doing lots of different workshops and seminars in complementary medicines and therapies and all sorts of different modalities and things because it was just fascinating to me. Plus, I was also studying meditation in sort of in a more Buddhist tradition at the time. And I just started to be really interested in healing, but also in the human condition and what actually happens. And then Reiki was one of the modalities that I came across back in 1985. And I introduced Reiki into my practice and I was seeing results from the people that were having Reiki that were beyond my understanding and explanation. I finished my degree, and as anyone who's had acupuncture will know, it's quite a mastery. And I, at best, was a baby junior novice. I ended up giving away all my modalities and becoming a professional Reiki practitioner and eventually teacher. I started to work a lot with people who are very ill, terminally ill and dying. And oh. they just found me. And I started to get known for doing that work. But here's the thing. Reiki was what got me in the door. I would go to someone's home. Yeah. perhaps, and be doing Reiki on them at home while they were healing. Or someone was dying and I I would go and do Reiki on them in the hospital or in the hospice or wherever they were in the aged oh. care. But then sometimes families be like, oh, we really want to take mum home so she can die at home. Great. I, I know where we can hire a hospital bed. I'll help you do that. So I would help them arrange that. And sometimes I was the liaison between the medical and nursing staff and the family, just simplifying the language. Again, I was death comfortable. It was all about the heart for me. It was all about supporting people at times of change. It was all about being able to give comfort at times of grief. It was all about encouragement and, and letting people know I believed in their capacity to deal with this and that I would walk alongside them while they did that. I mean, I'd never heard of the word doula, but all that I've just described to you, and to me, the essence of it, Philippa, is responding in the moment to what's needed in the moment. Yep. That's to yep. me is the essence of it. Fast forward a little bit, I met a master birth doula and she and I spent a lot of time together working together. We became good friends and we used to get together and she would tell her latest birth story and I would tell my latest death story. <laughs> she was doing incoming, I was doing outgoing and first breath and last breath. And one day she said, you're, you're, you're a bloody doula. And I went, you know what? I think I am because we talked about our roles were just so point by point similar. Mm. Just one was beginning of life, one was end. And she said, you know what? We need more end-of-life doula training. There's not enough professional training because there are other people delivering training, but the focus of preparing the way is that really professional level and hence doing the Cert for. Because the truth is, Philippa, that here in Australia anyway, I'll speak about that because I know the stats better, 80% of people die in either a hospital or an aged care facility. Wow. And only 14% of people get to die at home out of 70% of people who say they want to. I want doulas in hospitals and aged care facilities. And if the only way we can get them in there is with a qual, then that's why I designed one. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. So on your journey, was there a book or a person that really influenced you? Yes, there was. He's actually an Australian palliative care physician. I mean, honestly, I could give you a list like a library <laughs> long, right? but there's one particular person I want to literally take this opportunity to mention. His name is Dr. Michael Barbato, and he's an Australian retired now palliative care physician. 
he was such a champion for holistic, heartfelt, compassionate care at end of life. And not only that, he and, and a number of other doctors have done a lot of measured research onto what actually occurs at the time of death as far as consciousness is concerned. Mm. That is so groundbreaking. I've seen and experienced a lot of different things at the time of death and just after and leading up to it. And I've met a lot of people who've had near-death experiences who've talked about dying and coming back. So there's a whole other universe there to explore. <laughs> and I love that Dr. Barbado is able to document it, measure it in a hospital environment, and then provide that research for people. So it's, I've been very inspired by that work. And the part of the inspiration is not only about consciousness and what actually happens, but also about what it takes to do something to groundbreak in the face of resistance. Wow. And yeah. I feel yeah. like that's what we've had to do here in the doula movement because we get pushback even from palliative care. And so that's why I did the cert for was to go, you know what, come on, we've got a lot to contribute to this space. We don't want to get in your way. We want to collaborate with you and make people's end of life experience better. So Dr. Michael Barbado, in short, and he's written some beautiful books, Reflections on Death and Dying. So is there an inspirational quote that keeps you going or anything? Yes. Um, again, I could send you a box of those. Um, <laughs> the one that I use a lot is be the change you want to see. And I think that was Gandhi. And I love that. It, it's so easy to criticise the government, to criticise the system, to criticise the world issues. But I'm really finding in my own personal life that I have to live as an example of what I say I believe. And I'm for peace and I'm for kindness and I'm for compassion. That's what I see at end of life makes the most difference. So it's up to me to be that in the world. And sometimes that inspires others rather than whinge and bitch about what it's not. Be the change you want to see and inspire others to that and speak about it and talk it. It's role modelling, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter what we do in life and wherever you put your focus, it's going to expand and have a ripple effect. And I do the same in my own mentoring service. People come with problems and I say, okay, we got those problems. I'm not dismissing them, but let's work on creating and navigating a way forward. And so you'll be, have a better understanding of yourself and your needs. And I going to say it's a sad profession to be in but actually it's not because it's very beautiful but I'm sure you have moments of sadness and frustration even in getting yeah. a certificate and that what do you do when you're in a funk and you want to get yourself out of it yeah look that's a great question and I love that you asked that and I, I think to me rarely do I have that experience when I'm doing the hands-on work very very rarely where I find my funks happen are around business and they're around the system and they're around keeping on going when I'm tired and they're around keeping myself focused and leading a team. Some days I just have to go offline, not speak to anybody because I find so much of my time, I'm on Zoom, I'm speaking, I'm teaching, I'm coaching, I'm thising, I'm that. I have to zip it. <laughs> and some days I'll just go and literally rest. I've just got to let my mind unravel. I've got to think. And I'm finding I'm having to make more time to think. I've got a chair in the window. 
and there's beautiful trees out there. So I'll just sit in that chair and just look out and let my mind, it's like it unravels. Yeah. So time out, silence for me is a big deal. Sometimes it's um, ringing a friend. I've got a couple of really close colleagues that I ring up and go, okay, I need a committed listener, nothing to fix. And I just go, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but here's the thing, I love it. I get sick of myself because I really am committed to not doing victim. I can't stand how it feels. So I sort of go, okay, you've got 10 minutes, Helen, go. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a good old whinge and then I go, all right, that's it, you're done? Okay, good. Now let's move on. Yeah, so that's me. I love that. Committed listener. That's fantastic. With nothing to fix. I just want you to hear me. That's all. We could do the classes for men for a start, a bit of a sweeping statement, but they're not overly good at committed listening because they're compelled to help you. But anyway. Do you know what? I'm going to challenge that. Okay. Because in my experience, women, we are the fixers, and I'm putting my hand right up. That's part of what had me get into this. And, of course, this role is not about fixing anything. I challenge that. I think us women, we are the biggest fixers on the planet. In your whole message, I just hear which is a vital thing, whatever profession you're in, is actually time for yourself. It's self-care and recognising your need because oh. it's one of the things that I teach, particularly for women who are out there giving it to everybody else. Put a mirror up and treat yourself in the same way that you treat other people. No, yeah. We focus a lot on that in our training, of course, as well, Philippa, because it's crucial. I have a therapist that I do a lot of work with regularly. I've got a number of tools that I use to help me stay clear, basically, Mm. is what it's about. Probably for me, time alone and silent is really crucial for me because I spend so much of my time with people. I do my morning walks. The wind in the trees. Oh, my God. Sometimes I'll just sit down and listen just to the wind in the trees. That sound just, I don't know, it fills me somehow. I love Mm, it. Love it. Cool. Mm. So if I could be your fairy godmother and grant you one wish in the world, what would it be and why? I get teary thinking about it. It would be to help our business grow fast enough and strong enough and stable enough to be able to do everything that's possible and that's needed to do in this space. We've made such great inroads and doing this Cert 4, but there's so much more to do. We're on a mission to transform end of life in Australia and New Zealand. That's what I'm all about. Oh, that's so So wave that wand. Virtual fairy dust. Yay, I'll take it. (laughs) When are your next certifications in New Zealand and Australia? At the moment, they're Australian-based. One starting in February, and I believe we have our first New Zealand person doing that. Next one will be in June. We are in the process of applying to our governing body here in Australia, the accrediting body, to be able to lead it in New Zealand, which would mean myself and trainers would go to New Zealand, lead the face-to-face components in New Zealand to a New Zealand cohort. Then the rest of the classes would be on Zoom, and then we would go back for all the face-to-face segments. The dates are all there on the website. But anyone can email us, Philippa, at inquiries, with an S on the end, inquiries at preparingtheway.com.au. That email will come across my desk. We actually have a New Zealand team member, Telly Stevens, who lives in Taupo at the moment. So she can help talk to people over there so that we really make sure it's very specific to the New Zealanders. It's such an inspirational conversation that we've had and I really feel 
filled up and I feel your love and your enthusiasm for it. And thank you for your tenacity in the work that you're doing. Thank you, Philippa. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and your beautiful heart too. And thank you to all your listeners for listening. And go have the conversations, people. Absolutely. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Bless you. Thank you for your time, Helen. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye. What a way to end the season, contemplating how you want to live and die. I thought Helen's idea of a committed listener was invaluable. And then I went on to consider what a gift it would be to do the same for ourselves. I'd like to thank you for being a committed listener of the podcast. Your support helps sow seeds of change and sparks conversations with ideas and actions that makes the world a better place. Take some time to catch up on episodes you've missed out on. Share your thoughts and leave a review. And don't forget to get in touch if there's a subject or guest you'd like me to consider for next season. Just email me on info at philiparos.com. I'll be back in early February talking to Laura Andrews, who's one of three young New Zealanders currently skiing a thousand kilometres across Antarctica on the inspiring Explorers Expedition, retracing the steps of Roald Armanston, who discovered the South Pole on the 14th of December 1911. So, until next year, have fun, stay safe, dig deep and open your mind to a world of possibilities. Live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste, maximise your own potential and create the change you want to see in the world.